evening to you. Book of Proverbs, chapter 3, Sunday night through the Bible. Genesis to Revelation currently in Proverbs. If you're here tonight and you don't have a Bible, men are coming up the aisles with Bibles right now, just waving at their attention. They'll get a Bible into your hands, and that way you can read along as well as hear the Word of God tonight. And please, if you don't own a Bible, make that Bible a gift from the Lord to you this evening. What a wonderful thing it is to be able to have a book of the Bible. Of course, the whole Bible is a book of wisdom. It's a book of revelation. It's a book of a lot of things. But this book of Proverbs is specifically written in order to provide us with wisdom. I'm so glad that you don't have to be wise, naturally speaking, in order to live a wise life. Uh, some of us born into the world and we're not the sharpest knife in the drawer or the wisest person or we don't know how to put life circumstances together that this plus this, one plus one equals two. We can do it in terms of arithmetic, but in life we keep making the same mistake over and over and over again and making a mess of our life until finally we come to know God, we come to learn about the Bible, we put our faith in Christ, the Holy Spirit comes into our lives, and now wisdom comes to us from keep from keeping making the same mistakes over and over again. And so what a blessing it is to have God's wisdom on the nitty-gritty of life, the who, what, where, when, why, and how of life. Wouldn't it be something, I think we talked about a little bit when we were in Psalm 119, but wouldn't it be terrible if each one of us was born into this world and uh, we lacked God's wisdom for how to navigate it in its fallen condition And we had to learn everything by trial and error all of our life. Well, some of us have invested considerable years in trial and error, but when we became a Christian, we came out of that. But what if there was no other wisdom? We couldn't begin the day with the confidence that there is a way to live this life. There is God's wisdom, and to end the day in the same way. And every day was spent not only trying to navigate the difficulty of life, but also trying to figure out what is the wise thing to do in all the multitude of circumstances that we find ourselves in, all the decisions that we need to make, and what a weight has been lifted off of us. We don't even, once we, once we give our life to the Lord and we begin to obey His Word, His Word is the settled issue about right and wrong and how to live. We sometimes, we're so excited about being saved, all of these other issues in the Christian life that we don't even realize what a weight has been lifted off of us. Now, he tells us what is wise, how to live. We do it, and then we get in the power of the Holy Spirit, and then we are able to enjoy that quality of life. Again, the Lord has been so gracious to us. I'm so thankful for his wisdom and that he likes to share his uh, wisdom with us. And so we stopped last time in chapter 3. Uh, finished by looking at verse 11, and we pick things up uh, looking at wisdom, in, or, or we finished in verse 12, pick things up in verse 13, talking about uh, the, uh, uh, the, what wisdom produces in a person's life. Happy is the man who finds wisdom. I'll tell you, I'm happy. <laughs> All you got to do to appreciate God's wisdom is to have lived under your own for a while. I, I ended up committing my life to the Lord and really settling the issue of His Lordship when I was 25 years old. But in my youth, I was exposed to the things of the Lord, but I thought I was smarter than God. I wanted to try out some different things and make a go of it on my own and all. And uh, one of the great things about a Christian heritage in my youth is that when I crashed and burned, and it wasn't outwardly, it was the inside, I was so empty and uh, life had no meaning. I could, what's the purpose of all of this? That when I finally hit that place, became a casualty of my own wisdom, my own smartness, I at least knew where to turn to. And I was able to turn back to the Bible, get back into church, and begin the life that God had for me. Happy is the man who finds wisdom and who gains understanding. For her proceeds are better than the profits of silver and her gain than fine gold. She is more precious than rubies, and all the things that you may desire cannot compare 
with her. And so it's a beautiful reminder that uh, wealth and life. So we live in a very materialistic country. Uh, you talk about wealth and almost everybody thinks about portfolio. They think about material things. They think about money. They think about all of this. And so we immediately begin to think about wealth solely in the context of material wealth and material things. And we forget that there is a greater wealth than even those can provide for us. And he's going to talk to us about some of those things. He's going to talk about peace there in verse 17. I'll get to it before I get to it. How's that? What a gift I have. And then I'll get to it again once I get there, which is disheartening to you, but I'm sorry about that. What good is it if you own the whole world? And, of course, as Jesus said, lose your own soul. But what is it? Is it if you have all of the money in the world and you don't know peace, you don't have any peace at all. How valuable is all of that money and all of that wealth? Without peace, there's no capacity to enjoy all of that wealth. Only God gives us the capacity to enjoy what we have. And you can have a Christian who has submitted to God's ways and His wisdom, enjoying the life that God has called him to. He doesn't have but two quarters to rub together. Sits down to a banquet in the morning of a cup of tea and a couple of pieces of toast. And if he has a life of peace, peace with God, and he's living a life of peace in this world, he's richer than the richest person in the whole wide world that knows nothing of peace. You see, I don't believe that. That's something that preachers say. Believe it. Believe it from my lips and from the Word of God so that you don't have to learn it the hard way. It is things like peace, joy, uh, contentment. These things make us rich in a way that money can never, ever make us rich. And wisdom provides us with that. And he begins to speak to us then about some of the quality of life things that uh, wisdom brings into our life that money can never do. Length of days is in her right hand. Again, generally speaking, a person that lives a life in obedience to God's Word lives a longer life. Uh, they're spared an awful lot of uh, trouble in life and danger in life. In her ha- left hand, riches and honor. Her ways are the ways of pleasantness. Results in a pleasant life. Isn't that a nice uh, word? Pleasant. You say it's such a Bible word. It doesn't have any basis in the uh, harshness, the cruelty, the dog-eat-dog world that we live in today. Now there is a pleasant life to be found living in God's wisdom. And all of her paths are peace. You don't have to worry about the fact that as we live in His wisdom that somehow this is going to end up in a train wreck further down the road. She is a tree of life to those who take hold of her, and happy are all who retain her. I'll tell you, the simplest saint who possesses God's wisdom is richer than the richest person in the world who doesn't. And I think if you were to ask a Christian who's walked closely with the Lord really for any length of time, whether they would rather have all of the silver and the gold in the whole wide world uh, without God's wisdom or vice versa, and every one of them would tell you that its choice would be very, very simple. Then he speaks in verse 19 of God's wisdom that's demonstrated in creation. The Lord by wisdom founded the earth. By understanding, he established the heavens. By his knowledge, the depths are broken up and the clouds drop down the dew. So the creation that's all around us, the Bible teaches, is a testimony to God's power that he is a creator. And wherever you see creation, there's always a creator behind that creation. But this creation that we live in the middle of each and every day, all of the cycles, the weather patterns, the food patterns, the every patterns, all of these things are divine by origin, and they inter, interlock and interweave. But all of this that we live in the middle of, and we look around and we say, wow, God could create all of these things that we create. But the creation also speaks of God as a designer, and the design designer is always greater than the design, so it speaks of his wisdom. You look at the wisdom behind the creation, 
And so uh, we have access to the wisdom of God, the wisdom that was behind you know, the creating of the heavens and the earth and all of its designs. So when we come to the Lord and we say, Lord, what should I do in this great, big, gigantic situation in our life? And, that, and we wonder, is God going to have the wisdom? He had the wisdom to create what we live in the midst of every single day, and even in its fallen condition, is a wonder of His wisdom and of His power. And so the creation speaks to us of... uh, The wisdom in the creation speaks to us of the greatness of His wisdom. And then He goes on and He speaks to us of how that walking in God's wisdom results in a safe life, a fearless life. Life, My son, let them not depart from your eyes. Keep sound wisdom and discretion. And so they'll be like, they will be life to your soul and grace to your neck. And they'll adorn you. Wisdom adorns our lives as we've already seen. It makes our life beautiful in a way that it wouldn't otherwise be. In the same way that a beautiful necklace or piece of jewelry. Because, wow, that's terrific. Godly character born out of God's wisdom produces a wow factor in terms of just a beauty about our lives that we wouldn't otherwise possess. And so they will be life to your soul and grace to your neck, and then you will walk safely in your way and your foot will not stumble. And so God's way, walking in His wisdom, it's a safe way to live in in this world. And I'll tell you, look at how many other ways there are, paths that are put before us, Temptations, whether in the media or what's glamorized in movies or um, by, you know, pop personalities and these kind of things. There's no safety there. And yet here on the path that God puts us on of His wisdom, we can be confident we are on a safe uh, uh, path. Think about how much money people pay for safety in our culture, don't they? I mean, they, they got, we've got alarms on the houses. I'm not putting it down. There's the way things are. Um, people have alarm buttons. They have guns. They have all these different things. And society's become such that people have been kind of pushed into that place. And all the things that we do for safety. But the single greatest thing that an individual can do in order to keep our life safe is to walk in God's wisdom. And that's what the, the uh, Solomon is saying to his uh, sons here, and the Father is saying to us as His children. And then in terms of of what safety does, it also provides us with a good night's sleep, a clean conscience. When you lie down, uh, you will not be afraid. Yes, you'll lie down and your sleep will be sweet. And so uh, so a good night's sleep is a wonderful thing. The older you get, the more you realize, isn't it, you know? So... Man, I'm not going to go into it, but um, you'll understand later. But we, all of us, however often you might wake up in the night or ever light of a sleeper you become, the older a person gets so often, or the smallest chirp wakes you up, you know, and is ready to start the day at 2 in the morning, you know. And you, but you know you're not going to be functioning at 8, and so you've got to go back to sleep. But here is this the picture of a peaceful sleep that comes with a clean conscience. Do not be afraid of sudden terror, nor of trouble from the wicked when it comes, for the Lord will be your confidence and will keep your foot from being caught. So you have the wicked who live a life of um, rebellion against God's Word and against His wisdom, and again, it's glorified and it's magnified as the way to live and and all and so much in movies or whatever it might be, television. And uh, but but those people never they don't know anything of peace, and they don't know anything of a good night's sleep, unless it's drug induced or alcohol induced or whatever it might be. The Bible speaks about the wicked, and it talks about. Uh, the life of the wicked is just being churned up like the ocean where it's in a storm and the sand at the bottom of the ocean and all is churning up and the whole thing is a mix and it's a mess. Sometimes the life of the wicked, we look at it and say, you know, it's all wine, women, and song, whatever is the female equivalent of that. You figure that out, ladies. But that's how all of it's put forth. And God says, no, 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 don't you believe it for a moment. 
It is a terrible, terrible way to live. And God makes sure that it is so that they'll come to repentance and turn to him. Then he goes on to speak about wisdom concerning our relationships with our fellow men and especially uh, having to do with our our neighbors. Do not withhold good from those to whom it's due. Um, and uh, when it is in, your po- in the power of your hand to do so. And so this is just treating people right when they come to us, they're in a need, and uh, we're in a place to help them out in the situation. And so don't withhold good from them. And in this specifically speaking about our neighbors. And uh, our neighbor, of course, is one who lives nigh us in need. Jesus defined it that way. Don't say to your neighbor, go and come back and tomorrow I'll give it when you have it with you to, uh, to give it to them, whether it's a tool or whatever it might be. Do not despise, do not devise evil against your neighbor for he dwells by you for safety's sake. And so, uh, don't devise evil against the, your neighbor. Don't slander him. Don't create tension within the neighborhood against this neighbor, against that uh, neighbor. And when he, when he speaks here uh, of the fact that, um, let's see, uh, for he dwells with you at the end of verse 29, he, for he dwells by you for safety's sake. In the ancient world, your neighbor was your security system. And it's the same thing today. We have neighborhood watch. And one of the greatest things that a person can do is to be on good terms with their neighbor. We don't always, aren't always able to control that because sometimes neighbors don't want to be on good terms with us or with anyone. But it's just a good thing when you're gone. Here you've got a good relationship with a neighbor and that neighbor is going to watch out for your place and going to watch out for your things and look after you. And so, uh, kind of an ancient neighborhood watch in, in terms of have a good relationship with your neighbor. It's good for you. He's looking out for you. You're looking out for him. Do not strive with man without a cause uh, if he has done you no harm. And so uh, wisdom instructs us here on how to be a good neighbor, how to treat our neighbors so that we can enjoy a, a grace-filled uh, peaceful uh, relationship with our neighbors. And so being in a good relationship with our neighbors is a great blessing. Uh, all you have to do is live in a multi-million dollar home and be at odds with your neighbor. And uh, it's amazing how that multi-million dollar home diminishes in value. You can wish that you were in a cottage somewhere, somewhere where all of your neighbors were uh, you were at peace with. And so as much as we can be in control of that, we should be, uh, you know, developing and cultivating a peaceful relationship. Do not envy the oppressor and choose none of his ways. And so again, so off the oppressor, uh, there's a lot of money can be made in oppression in the world today. And, uh, and so oppression, people taking advantage of other people to separate them from their money, using power in order to do that. There's white-collar oppression. There's gang oppression. There's what's considered legitimate oppression and illegitimate oppression. It's all displeasing to the Lord and tells us not to choose uh, their ways, no matter how lucrative it might look. For the perverse person is an abomination to the Lord, but his secret counsel is with the upright. The curse of the Lord is on the house of the wicked. Believe that. God says that over and over again in, the, in, the word, in, in His Word. The, the, wicked, it, the life of the wicked is nothing like how it's portrayed. God makes it miserable for them every single day. We just don't go home with them. We just don't sleep in their bedroom and watch them toss and turn all night. We don't go to their medicine cabinet and see how many pills are up in there. There's a, we don't know their family and how broken and up that is. We don't go to their funeral after they die and see that there's nobody there. No, it's no way to live. And God knows that it's a cursed way to live. But he blesses the home of the just. Surely he scorns the scornful, but gives grace to the humble. The wise shall inherit glory, but shame shall be the legacy of 
fools. Then he continues in chapter 4, his father's kind of testimony to his children concerning wisdom. And so we see here, my children, once again, my son, my son, my children, uh, repeated over and over again in these first nine uh, chapters. Here, my children, the instruction of a father. And give attention to no understanding. So maybe you didn't have a father. Maybe you didn't have a good father. Here is... Here is your heavenly Father speaking through His Word to give you wisdom, what you should have been given earlier in life and you didn't get, but it's, it's available to us now, our Father speaking to us from heaven. For I give you good doctrine. Do not forsake my law. When I was my father's son, and Solomon was the son uh, of David, and he gives us a little insight into David's parenting role into his life. When I was my father's son, tender and the only one in the sight of my mother. And so Solomon was the oldest son of Bathsheba and David. Other sons followed, but here is this season where he kind of had them alone, tender and the only one in the sight of my mother. He also taught me and he said to me, let your heart retain my words Keep my commands and live. You can hear David saying this. Get wisdom. Get understanding. Do not forget nor turn away from the words of my mouth. And so David emphasized to Solomon from very, very young in his age the importance of getting wisdom and getting knowledge uh, from God at whatever the cost that was required. I don't doubt that David's emphasis upon attaining God's wisdom and obeying God's wisdom in Solomon's life, that it, ha- it played a big part in the night when the Lord came to Solomon early in his reign and asked him, what shall I give to you? And Solomon said, give me the wisdom that I need to rule over these people. Give me the wisdom that I need in the calling that you have placed upon my life. He said, I don't know how to go into the throne room and out of the throne room, let alone how to make a wise decision while sitting on the throne. Would you give me that wisdom? And God says, because you haven't asked for riches or power or the life of your enemies, but you've asked for this wisdom, it pleases me, and I'll give that wisdom to you. But I think that this great influence of his father in his life probably played a big part in him asking instantaneously uh, for uh, wisdom. And David raised his son Solomon with the strong desire of the necessity of getting wisdom and understanding, which really means to live uh, for the Lord. And then he goes on to speak about the reward of wisdom or the blessings of wisdom. Do not forsake her. She will preserve you. Love her, and she will keep you. Wisdom is the principal thing. Therefore, get wisdom and all of your understanding, uh, get, and in all of your getting, get understanding, exalt her through obedience, and she will promote you. She will bring you honor when you embrace her. She will be, she will place on your head an ornament of grace, a crown of glory. She will deliver uh, to you. And so uh, all of these wonderful things that wisdom brings into our, our lives, he says, is going to put you in a place of positions of honor, and not just because you have money, but because you're an honorable person, and uh, she will make, again, our lives attractive to others, the quality of the life uh, that we are living. I think that it is always good to remember. It isn't always true, but it's true more often than we realize. Here we see the influence of David upon Solomon, at least early in his reign. And I think it's good for us to remember as parents that in raising our children so often, we are also raising our grandchildren that there are things when we do it in cooperation with the Lord, there are things that we will say to our children that they will then uh, amazingly find those same words coming out of their mouth (laughs) to their own children. Not always does it happen, but it happens more often than not. And I think it's a great encouragement 
to parents that the influence is not only on your own kiddos, but even on into the next generation. An influence for God is ultimately all we end up caring about, really, in our children's lives. We care about everything, but the fact that they walk with the Lord and are deep in the things of the Lord, that's all that really matters to us ultimately. In in verse 10, Solomon speaks about two paths, the right path and the path of the wicked. Hear my son and receive my sayings, and the years of your life will be many. I have taught you in the way of wisdom. I have led you in right paths. When you walk, your steps will not be hindered. In other words, unimpeded. It's a, again, it's a safe way to live. It's the right way to live. It's how God has created us to live according to His Word and His wisdom. And when you run, you will not stumble. Again, it's a safe way to live. Take hold of instruction. Do not let go. Keep her, for she is your life. And I like that phrase there in verse 13. Keep her, speaking of wisdom, for she is your life. And that's an important warning for us to realize. To fail to heed God's wisdom, even one time, can lead to a disaster in a world that is as fallen and as dangerous as this world is. You know, in the ancient world, they... Um, They had to deal with things that were consequences of sins. Um, Many sexually transmitted diseases in those days uh, were uh, terminal. There was no cure for them. You would die of them once you contracted them. Today, we have drugs to be able to treat uh, those diseases. But there are things that we face in this culture, this modern era, Uh, just in terms of technology, just in terms of the sheer amount of sin and trouble that we can get ourselves into instantly um, by virtue of computers, by virtue of technology and these kind of things. We face challenges that they never, ever dreamed of uh, thousands of years ago. And so back in the old days, a margin, I mean, making a wrong decision could cost you your life. And I think it's even more so today, the importance of living according to God's wisdom. I don't think that there's much uh, room for error today in the world related to a lot of sin. It just takes one act of sexual immorality and it can result in a death sentence through AIDS. Just getting drunk one time, getting behind the wheel of a car... Uh, Try to get home can lead to your own death or the death of others. Or just trying drugs just one time can result in in a bad trip and the loss of a person's mind. I knew two people growing up when I was younger. And I wasn't, like, entrenched in any kind of a drug culture. It was kind of recreational, what was going on more or less, um, when I was uh, in high school and that kind of thing. But there they were. I don't know who was selling what or where they got it from. One time I was watching one of those learning channels or something like that, and they were uh, showing the cocaine trade and the whole thing for where all of this comes from right out of the jungles and the whole deal and everything, you know. So, let's just say it isn't organic. Man, they take those leaves and they get that powder and they put in those chemicals and you don't know what those chemicals are. And these are not pharmacists that are working on this stuff out there. They're just putting this in and that there. And then they put them and they make them into the cakes and then they get sent off. And I mean, you don't know what you're going to get on things. And then up a couple of people that got in just one time fried their brain. Never the same Again, And that's why it's important to listen when somebody writes us, keep her, verse 13, for she is your life. And then he describes the path of the wicked. Do not. Anybody misunderstand that? Do not enter the path of the wicked. And do not walk in the way of the Lord. So we're not talking about suggestions here. Avoid it. Do not travel on it, turn away from it, and pass on. So Solomon says five different ways, just in case uh, we're a little slow related to it. 
and says, here's the path of the wicked. Don't get on this path. Don't be curious about it and investigate the path of wickedness. There's a hook to sin. There's a hook to all sin, and it will hook you, and it will destroy you. So many people get hooked on a certain sin because they thought they just would check it out. I'm just going to check it out. I heard about this. I think I'll just check it out. And Solomon says, don't do it. Paul wrote to the Romans and he said, be simple regarding that which is evil. Think about how many people will go to the computer on this one. And they just wanted to investigate the problem of pornography in the culture. And so they do that for a while, convincing themselves they're in investigation mode. And then the next thing, Pete Townsend, next thing you know, they're investigating child pornography on the Internet. Sometimes as a pastor, and sometimes I suppose I need to hear about things. But sometimes someone will come to me about maybe a friend or a situation or something, and they'll say, Pastor, here's the situation, and all the way deep down in my heart, I'm not saying don't come to me and talk to me about things, but deep down in my heart I think to myself, I wish I'd never heard that. I wish I never knew that that world existed. I wish I never knew that I could go home and start to investigate that. And I'm not just talking about pornography now. I'm talking about all kinds of wickedness and all kinds of evil. But a lot of it is sexual in our culture. And there's something to be said, the strength with which... Paul is, uh, 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 Solomon is writing here about staying up. Don't go on that path. Don't investigate it. Don't learn more about it. Don't convince yourself that this is something that, you know, I can deal with from a safe academic setting, be, uh, a mindset, because that's the mindset that I'm going into it. Sin is far too clever far too sophisticated than that. It has far too great of a hook to grab us. Better to live this life, as, again, as Paul said, being simple, related to what is evil. And that's what Solomon is saying to his, uh, to his uh, sons here. And he says, for they, speaking about the life of the wicked, for they do not sleep unless they've done evil. Their sleep is taken away unless they make someone fall. There's an adrenaline rush to crime. There's an addiction element to crime. And here, here's, here's another hook. All sin has a hook. And here they, they can't even go to sleep until they've done some evil in, in life. That's how addicted they are to it. They think now it's just about money. It's just about this. It's about that. They're in the grips. They're not free. They're not head of some, you know, a gang or the head of some whatever that might be, and, and they're free of this. They don't even realize they are hooked by this sin. They can't, they're like in a, the adrenaline. I mean, they're just hooked to what it is that they experience in that, in the wickedness of their flesh. They're as hooked as to violence and to crime and to evil as anyone is to any drug or alcohol. For they eat the bread of wickedness, and they drink the wine of violence. In other words, they're addicted. Just like eating and drinking uh, they are, uh, is, is something that we must do. They are addicted to violence. But then notice this in verse eight, pray, 18. Praise the Lord for verse 18. But the, wicked, but the path of the just is like the shining sun that shines ever brighter unto the perfect day. Look at the life that we get to live as Christians. It gets better and better and better and better. I don't say that it gets easier, because it doesn't. But it gets better. What we learn of God, what we see, the quality of life that we get to live, it's its own reward. 
And it gets brighter and brighter and brighter, he says, shining ever brighter under the perfect day until the day that one day we are in the new heavens and in the new earth and in the new Jerusalem we're told that there is no sun and there is no light because the light of the world, the Lamb, is the light of the new Jerusalem. This path that we're on leads all the way to that place. And the way of the wicked is like darkness, and they do not know what makes them stumble. And so the darkness of the life that they live, the contrast between the two paths and uh, the path of the just better and better, the path of the wicked leading to an inevitable fall and inevitable harm to oneself. And Solomon says that when the wicked fall, they will be so blind that they won't even know what hit them. And that's the thing of wickedness. That's the thing of the life of crime. Sooner or later, you always make a mistake. You know why you always make a mistake? The criminal always makes a mistake. The wicked man always makes a mistake and gets caught. And the reason is, is because sin and wickedness makes you stupid. It just makes you stupid. That's just the way that it is. You stay in a life of crime or wickedness long enough and you will make a dumb move and not even realize how stupid your sin has made you. In England just a few years ago, Peter Addison and his friend Mark Ridgway, they vandalized the Talk H Center, a children's campsite building, And they smashed all of the crockery. They set off all the fire extinguishers. They drew graffiti on the walls. And part of the graffiti said, Peter Addison was here. (laughs) And, of course, the police went to the computer database, and they found him, and he pled guilty. The police officer that was investigating that crime, said there are some pretty stupid criminals around, but to leave your own name at the scene of the crime, I mean, that takes the biscuit. Here's another England, recent England illustration. The article says, usually a burglar robs the house while the victim is asleep, but in this story, the roles were reversed. 24-year-old Mark Smith sneaked into Heather Stevenson's home, crept past her while she was ironing rifled through her belongings in the bedroom. Then he fell asleep under her bed. (laughs) Mrs. Stevenson couldn't wake him. The police officers had to drag him out from under the bed. His vodka and Valium consumption were to blame, and he received an 18-month sentence for burglary. So, boy, I'm glad I don't live in England. All right, how about Pittsburgh? Man flew into a rage at a giant eagle supermarket when employees refused to cash a million-dollar bill. (laughs) Will there be anything else, sir? Yes, I'll take that comb and a box of chiclets. And uh, by the way, do you have change for a million-dollar bill? 66-year-old Samuel Porter slammed an electronic machine on the counter, and then he refused to give his name to authorities. He was taken into the Allegheny County Jail. What he didn't know is that the largest bill currently in production, according to the U.S. Department of Treasury, is the $100 bill. Whoops. Here's a final illustration. The article said, robbing corner stores have become very, very common lately. A few years back in Colorado Springs, one robber walked into a store and he demanded the cashier to get the cash out of the drawer and put it in his bag while he was pointing the gun. And he also demanded the cashier to include the bottle of scotch find behind the counter. The cashier hesitated. He told the robber he didn't believe he was of legal age to purchase the alcohol. And to prove that to the cashier that he was above 21, the robber pulled out his driver's license, showed it to the cashier, and he got the bottle of scotch, and they knew what his name was and proceeded to arrest him. But 
Wickedness just makes you stupid. But it's not just these, these are funny, these are extreme kind of things. But you know, when a person lives their life for evil and for wickedness, that means they never use their mind and everything that God has given them that's intended to be invested in virtue and in righteousness. It never gets exercised. And so it's just one dumb decision after another after another in life. And it doesn't matter that they end up being worth $100 billion in terms of net worth. What's the condition of their family? What's the condition of their relationship with other people? And it makes us dumb about everything in life because there's only one way that we're intended to live life, and that's in accordance with God's wisdom. And so here Solomon gives this final kind of great plea related to all of this to his son. My son, give attention to my words. Incline your ear to my sayings. Do not let them depart from your eyes. Keep them in the midst of your heart, for they are life to those who find him and health to all their flesh. All of life is hangs in the balance on which wisdom we choose to live by. Give your, keep your heart with all diligence for out of the spring for out of its spring the issues of life put away from you a deceitful mouth and put perverse lips far from you let your eyes so he speaks of the mouth then he speaks of the eyes he spoke of the heart actually first in verse 23 then the mouth verse 24 then the eyes in verse 25 let your eyes look straight ahead not looking at Wickedness on either side of things, the idea is steadfast looking ahead, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, and your eyelids look right before you, ponder the path of your feet, and let all of your ways be established. Do not turn to the right or to the left. Remove your foot uh, from evil. And so he's calling on his son to consecrate the entirety of his life to God and to God's wisdom. The New Testament uh, would be, I beseech you now, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, Romans chapter 12, verse 1, that you present your body as a living sacrifice to God, which is your reasonable, uh, which is acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service, the whole of our life being committed wholly to God's wisdom. And then in chapter 5, he uh, continues to speak about... Uh, what he speaks about quite a bit in the early part of this book and talking about sexual immorality. So here is wisdom's counsel on sexuality. And, and here is an entire chapter that is given over uh, to that subject. And for good reason, if you're going to talk to people about wisdom, you're going to have to talk about uh, the proper um, expression of sex. And, uh, and it, of course, it's never more needed. And I think in one era versus another era, certainly never this instruction never more needed than in our particular time in, in uh, history, how desperately we need to hear what God has to say about this area of our lives. You think about the terrible price that people pay every single day for living contrary to God's wisdom related to uh, sexual immorality. My son, pay attention to my wisdom. Lend your ear to my understanding that you may preserve discretion and your lips may keep knowledge. For the lips of an immoral woman drip honey. And this works both ways. And so he's talking to a son, so he's talking about an immoral woman. If he was talking to a daughter, he'd talk about an immoral man. Works both ways. And so we can apply it to your situation. For the lips of an immoral woman drip honey. In other words, honey was the sweetest thing you could eat in the ancient world. And, and so here is a woman who, uh, from her lips, she knows how to flatter. She knows how to use seductive words. Uh, she knows how to sweet talk would be how we'd probably put it. Sweet talk a person into sexual immorality. And not only that, but her mouth is smoother than oil talking about olive oil and the smoothness with which she can speak. And so, again, here's an immoral woman. She knows men, and she knows what to say to them. And, of course, you get men and women that are very, very 
um, kind of sophisticated or, or experienced in terms of sexual immorality, and they end up knowing an awful lot about that. And, and the instruction is important for everyone, but here he's trying to talk to a son who is uh, wonderfully uh, simple and naive about these things and to give him enough instruction that he avoids this kind of person without giving him too much instruction. And, and so uh, warning here about this kind of person. They know men, they know what, how to speak to men, and they know how to lure them uh, without much effort into sexual immorality. I remember many years ago listening to a Calvary Chapel pastor, and if I named his name, if, if almost all of you would know his name. And he said it publicly, so I could name his name, but I'm not going to. Now I have no time to tell you what the introduction was so long. That, but he told the story about when he was a brand new Christian. And uh, this, this is a very sweet man, a kind of a friend. He was a brand new Christian, and he would witness to a telephone pole. I mean, he just would witness just an evangelist like crazy on a personal level. Uh, and, and in all ways. But he was with a friend. They were tag-teaming, sent out in twos, and they went into this apartment complex, and they were sharing the gospel with people. And they came out around to the area of the pool, and he started to share the gospel with this very attractive young woman that was lying uh, around the pool. And uh, and she she spoke to him, and she says, I don't want to know anything about that Christianity. I Don't speak to me about it at all. And yet he continued to persist. And he said, listen. He said, she said, I am currently sleeping with one of the pastors in this city. Don't talk to me about this. And she said, if I wanted to, I could seduce you into my bed. And he said, oh, you could not, you know, kind of a thing, you know, in his deal. His friend who was witnessing with him grabbed him by the arm and ran him out of there. And there are people that are like that, though. I mean, they are very good at drawing in there. And it's a good thing, like Joseph did, in a lot of circumstances, if it's necessary, run. Leave your best tennis shoes behind or jacket or whatever you need to but run and get out of there. But the end, and that's what people so often don't think about until uh, the afterword of things, and God's Word is always careful to speak to us. You know, so much of the entertainment today glorifies sexual immorality, and but it never shows the consequences after. Then they give this kind of sappy, happy ending or whatever it might be on, on something, and everybody's made to feel that there are no consequences to the sin. And God is always careful to tell us there's an afterward to sin that never gets shown, and you need to know that ahead of time, and it's part of being able to resist the temptation. But in the end, she is bitter as wormwood or as gall. Gall was like the bitterest thing you could taste in the ancient world. And so that's the way it is with sexual immorality is, you know, sin is pleasurable for a season, the Bible says. It's not going to lie to us. That's 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 the... The, the lure related to sin is that it is pleasurable. But to, the reminder that, yes, that is pleasurable for a moment, but realize that immediately afterwards, then there is the dealing with the consequences of it, the regret uh, of it, the bitter aftertaste of sexual immorality, what I feel about myself as a result of having done this, uh, what I feel about the opposite sex as a result of this. She is sharp as a two-edged sword. In other words, she destroys, does harm uh, to people. Her feet go down to death and her steps lay hold of hell. And so she leads to death and ultimately and most dangerously she re- leads in a person into eternal judgment. Lest you ponder her path of life, her ways are unstable, you do not know them. The sexually immoral person is an unstable person. Solomon is saying, and, and they are. 
and the person that knows how to use sex trap people into relationships, either short-term or relatively long-term. That is, that is a person that is an unstable person. It is an unstable person who settles into a life of sexual immorality. There's something very wrong there. I remember listening to Laura Schlesinger when she was on the radio a long time ago before she kind of got drummed out of it by the homosexual community. But I didn't listen to her very often. In fact, I think I only listened to her for about 10 minutes three different times because when I turn on the radio, I'm not, I'm not interested in listening. Oh, good, I get to listen to people's problems for an hour, even if they're my own problems. So there was no appeal to it. She was talking about homosexuality. I was driving down McHenry, I can tell you, right at the intersection that I was stopped at, and she spoke about sexual immorality, and she said, related to she says, it related to the sin of homosexuality, there's something wrong with you in practicing this. There's something wrong, fundamentally wrong, with homosexuality and with the sin. Of course, it's true of all uh, all sin, but she she spoke that, and I thought, wow. I mean, the way she said it, way more forcefully and more articulate than I just uh, said it. But I thought, nobody is saying what this woman has just declared all across the fruited plain of the United States of America, on both coasts. And uh, sure enough, and they had uh, her in their uh, sights in order to now remove her from the radio, boycott her, and all the whole. A homosexual agenda and all that uh, portrays itself as being tolerant, but it's only tolerant till it gets uh, it gets the power, and then it becomes as tolerant, intolerant as everybody else uh, is, apart from the Lord. And so, this whole thing she lays this whole thing out with uh, that kind of clarity. And Solomon's doing the same thing here. We live in a world that is in a country that is so given over to sex, sexual immorality is so rampant and it's so commonplace that we need someone to speak to us and only God is going to speak to us from the words of Scripture and to say that a person who does this, that's an unstable person. You do not want to get into a relationship with a person who is a sexually immoral person. They have a lot of problems in their life way beyond their sexual sin. And a person does themselves a favor, uh, certainly if they're looking for someone to marry and to develop a relationship with, which is what Christians do, to steer clear of that kind of person. And certainly when it talks about the prostitute, uh, the person that makes a living out of this, you're talking about tremendous uh, instability in that person's life. It doesn't mean they're beyond the... Uh, the reach of the Lord, and that God can't do a miracle in their life. Listen, who's talking unstable? I'm about the most unstable person in the world apart from the Lord. But, it, but I'm just saying that it's in all different areas related to things. And so somehow we need to be told these kind of things and to make us shock us a little bit, pull us back, and make us rethink uh, what it is that we're seeing around us all of the time. Therefore, hear me now, my children, and do not depart from the words of my mouth. Remove your way far from her. Don't go near the door of her house. So the problem, the interesting thing about the sex drive, and I know none of you have one because we're all Christians, and when we become a Christian, that disappears. I don't know how it happens, but it happens, and all of these uh, children that I dedicate week in and week out. They are immaculate conceptions. They are all miracles of the Holy Spirit. Um, so, no, the sex drive is a very strong drive in our lives. And that's, that's the truth about things. And since that temptation is inside of us, when, then what we have to do is we have to stay away from environments that will sexually uh, tempt us sexually, stay away from where sexually immoral people are. If, you, if a person has struggles with alcohol, then you don't go into a bar to get a 7-Up. If a person has trouble with sexual immorality, then you don't go around sexually immoral people. And it's just 
good wisdom, the importance of, you know, making those kind of choices, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, in, in our lives. And so to stay very, very far uh, away from her. Don't go near the door of her house. When Jesus taught us to pray on a daily basis in the Lord's Prayer, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And he's saying a lot in that line, but part of what he's saying is that we're crying out to the Lord, Lord, don't let the opportunity to sin and the temptation to sin to coincide. And But we play a part in that. We can't begin the day by saying, Lord, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And then we have a, a problem in resisting sexual temptation, and we go down to the red light district of some urban center. We play a part in staying away from these environments uh, because uh, distance is very, very helpful, among other things, in resisting temptation. And then here are some of the consequences of sexual immorality that he warns uh, his uh, son concerning, and it's good for us to hear as well. Lest you give your honor to others and your years to the cruel one. In other words, you squander all of your best and all of your most productive years in life as a result, just completely monopolized on, of the, on sex and the sexual relationship. It's an interesting thing, you know, before you become an adolescent, uh, there's, you know, there's no real sex drive there the, in comparison to what it's going to become as a person gets older typically without um, some kind of medical assistance that's available to us today, um, that sometimes that uh, side of things can begin to wane just a little bit. And so in the ancient world, there was this great middle period in life that was productive. It was a productive time in life. It was a time for reproduction sexually in terms of marrying, having children. And, but that wasn't, uh, that wasn't the only um, those sexual years that are a part of our lives are also the most highly productive part of our lives in terms of creativity and other things. And how many people can get caught into uh, sexual sin and then they lose all of those years of productivity being poured into um, being uh, into areas that they're called to bring beauty to the world and beauty to their families and their workplace and all of these kind of things. And so it robs those years. It makes those best years, our most productive years, all about just one thing instead of the broader thing that God wants those years to be about. He said, lest aliens be filled with your wealth. And so often with prostitution, these were not um, Jews that were do, engaged in prostitution, Jewish women, um, but there was that that went on. Ultimately, when they did become apostate, that was occurring. But most of the prostitutes at the time that Solomon is writing this, they were foreigners that came into the nation. And so, lest aliens be filled with your wealth and your labors go to the house of a foreigner, where a person can work their whole life, come to the end of their life and say, where did all of your money go? went down the street over here, all of it gone into the house of a foreigner. And you mourn at last when your flesh and your body are consumed, and so the physical disease that comes with sexual immorality. And then here is the emotional regret, the emotional price that is paid uh, for sexual immorality, and say, how I have hated instruction and my heart despised correction. I have not obeyed the voice of my teachers, including Sunday school teachers, nor inclined my ear to those who instructed me. I was on the verge of total ruin in the midst of the assembly and congregation. And so here is a man who has wasted his life in sexual immorality, and he realizes, I knew better, I was raised better, I was taught better, and yet I did that. And now he's trying to reintroduce himself back into the things of the Lord, and yet his conscience is, is hurting him, even in a spiritual environment, over the regret of his past. Now let me say something about this. The wonderful thing, and it needs to be said related to this, is that no matter what background we come from, there is no sin or series of sin or a lifestyle of sin that is greater 
than the shed blood of Christ upon that cross for the forgiveness of our sins. He does give us a fresh start every time we ask Him for forgiveness. And when we became Christians, He did make us into a new creation. There is no sin greater than the forgiveness that is found in Christ. And so I don't want anybody leaving here under condemnation. Here is, and here's the thing that every father, Solomon uh, in that role, every pastor, um, so many other people, they deal with in dealing with Bible truth today. Because in a room like this, there's a whole group that's in this room where you want them, they are right where Solomon's sons are. And you want to be strong in the message to tell them, stay away from this life. Don't you learn the hard way what enough people have already learned the hard way. And so there needs to be the strength of the message. These are the consequences. Don't do it. Stay away. Keep off the path. But then there's also the knowledge that in a room like this, there is a considerable portion of it that comes from a sexually immoral background. And so there needs to be the hope and the confidence in God's forgiveness of us for our sins. And so there's that whole balance that's occurring. And I always think that how I feel, and since I, you know, I, I feel that um, most of us are probably in this way after we walk with the Lord for a little while, Yes, I want to be reassured in God's grace and in His forgiveness, and I desperately need that. We all desperately need that. But I never listen to a sermon where somebody is speaking about the right way to do things to those who haven't yet done the wrong way and ever have the idea that I wish that person would stop talking or that he would soft-sell that a little bit. No, I want those that haven't entered into my sin, whatever my sin might be, to hear everything that they need in order to not go on that path. And so there's the whole dynamic that goes on in a room like this. And God is bigger than all of it, and His forgiveness is greater than all of that. It, But all of it speaks to us and is important for us to hear. And then he closes here by talking about staying faithful to your own husband or our own husband or wife. He said, drink water from your own cistern. And it's poetic imagery of the sexual relationship between a husband and a wife and running water from your own well. Should your fountain, speaking to the man, be dispersed abroad, streams of water in the streets, should this be, you know, given to other women other than your wife? Let them be only your own and not for strangers with you. And let your fountain be blessed and rejoice with the wife of your youth as a loving deer and a graceful doe. Let her breast satisfy you at all times and always be enraptured with her love. For why should you, my son, be enraptured by an immoral woman and be embraced in the arm uh, arms of a seductress? And so he says, this is the way to do it. This is how God has intended the sexual relationship to be. You are not missing anything by following God's model of one man, one woman for life. Express yourself sexually within that relationship and that relationship alone. For the ways of man are before the eyes of the Lord. And, um, and, and so the end of, he talks about, um, why it's important to be sexually pure and keep that relationship expressed solely within marriage. For the eyes of man are before the eyes, uh, 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 the ways of man are before the eyes of the Lord, and he ponders all his paths. This only means something to a child of God, but Solomon writes and says, listen, stay pure, reason number one, because God sees everything that everyone does. And we don't want him to see that in our life. We want to bless him with a higher life than that. 
And then he says, number two, his own iniquities entrap the wicked man, and he's caught in the cords of, of his sin. And so uh, uh, sexual immorality and sin uh, ties a person down, just like ropes tie a person down. And then reason number three, he shall die for lack of instruction, and in the greatness of his folly he shall go astray. It leads to death. It de- leads to dying in sin. And you think about how many people will go into eternity Christless because they would not give up sexual immorality in order to turn from their sin and put their faith in Christ. And Solomon here gives a warning to his son that is as current today as ever it was 3,000 years ago. What a wonderful thing here as we've gone through almost three chapters here. Look at the variety of... Are you laughing because we got through three chapters? (laughs) All right. No respect, but I understand all of that. But look at the variety of wisdom that we've been able to look at and look at the quality of life that is produced by just simply dealing with our neighbor in this way, using our speech in this way, remaining sexually pure as he describes, the quality of life that comes out of it, or the life that God has for us, a life of freedom and joy and peace in this life to say nothing of the life to come. We're so thankful for his wisdom. Let's stand together and we'll pray.